I am Kevin Barrett, blowing the whistle on crimes of the powerful since 2006. Please subscribe to the show. Go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack button. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Hello? Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. Broadcasting out of my old ice cream trailer in the woods of western Wisconsin, bringing on the most interesting folks I can find to talk to about everything that the corporate-controlled cover-up media doesn't want to tell you. Tonight, we're having a very interesting show. Uh, Two totally different hours. Second hour, Tom Compton comes on for some interfaith dialogue. Tom Compton is a follower of Jesus. He doesn't want to be called a Christian. And he has been going up against the so-called Christian Zionists. He's made a film and participated in a number of events. So we'll get into that in the second hour. But now in the first hour, for the first time ever on Truth Jihad Radio, a historic whistleblower. I actually followed this guy's work sort of mostly unknowingly, I think. Um, In the mid-80s, the space shuttle Challenger blew up in 1986 and I remember reading about the way the cover-up unraveled. Well, it turns out it only semi-unraveled. But a lot of the unraveling that did happen was thanks to the good efforts of Richard Cook, who worked at NASA in the key months before that disaster and pretty much almost single-handedly decided to blow the whistle and talk to journalists. And uh, he, he got that cover-up almost taken down. And in his book, Challenger Revealed, he, I think he pretty well does take it down. So, hey, it's an honor to welcome Richard Cook. How are you, Richard? Good, Kevin. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, and I'm, I'm really happy to Good. have you on. I was very impressed by your book. Yeah. It's uh, meticulous, uh, detailed, and thoroughly convincing. I mean, I, I hated Reagan back in the day, but, you know, if I'd known <laughs> that he, he was probably personally involved to some extent in pressuring NASA to launch the Challenger, uh, even though there were so many very strong reasons not to. Um, that would have been just one more <laughs> nail in his coffin, as far as I was concerned. Uh, and and you, I tend to agree that that the Reagan administration was uh, bad news. So, boy, where where should we start here? Why, why don't you introduce yourself and and just tell the people how you. Uh, ended up working in NASA just in time to blow the whistle on the Challenger. Well, I'll I'll do my best, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, we have to go back uh, uh, some time, and uh, it's uh, in my book. I, I kind of go through my personal background, but my awakening, I think, to what was going on in the world around me came with the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. And uh, it it didn't take me that long, and I was helped in this uh, by reading Mark Lane's book, Rush to Judgment, 
uh, to realize that Kennedy uh, had more than likely been killed by our own government. Uh, so that was part of my, my personal background. I, I was not in favor of the Vietnam War by, by any means. Uh, I was in college at the time during the, at the peak of the war. And in 1970, when I graduated, uh, despite my uh, misgivings, uh, I went to work for the federal government in Washington, D.C., uh, as an analyst for what was then the U.S. Civil Service Commission. And I gradually worked my way up through the ranks as an analyst, but I came up through the civilian side of government, and I was never a big fan of, of the military, not only having to do with uh, uh, the Vietnam War, but I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is right on the border, as you probably know of, a huge uh, part of the military-industrial complex. In fact, uh, our family home was about a mile from the CIA training base at Camp Perry, uh, which was also the base where the Seabees were trained. And that's where my father was trained in World War II when he went into the Seabees. So I had a thorough grounding in what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex and found it extremely uh, distasteful and, and in the long run detrimental to my idea of democracy, of, of the American democracy. Uh, so anyway, I continued in the, in the government and I ended up working in the Jimmy Carter White House. Uh, I, I was a pretty good analyst uh, uh, and uh, went to work there in 1979 and I saw the Reagan revolution come. Uh, I, I was a, a witness. I met Carter. I was a witness to the Reagan takeover, which was done in a very underhanded way uh, by uh, the uh, uh, detainment of the Iranian hostages uh, until the Reagan inauguration. And even uh, as far as the uh, recession of 1979, 1980, which I later became convinced, was engineered to drive Carter out of the White House and part of the Reagan takeover. Interesting. Reagan now, now were, you aware, were you aware of these things, or, and specifically the October surprise issue of uh, Bill Casey and H.W. Bush uh, working with uh, Iranian leaders to make sure that or to cut a deal? Uh, to pay them off, basically, to keep the U.S. hostages locked up in order to discredit Carter and ensure Reagan's election. I did not know anything about that at the time, but uh, when Reagan was inaugurated, I believe it was that very same day they were announcing the release of the American hostages from Tehran, and it was supposed to be this big jubilation uh, of Reagan coming in and somehow having engineered that, or at least it coinciding with the start of his presidency. We also <laughs> witnessed the, oh. the, the wait, 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 wait. of Jim. Stop, yeah. stop for a second, Richard. So, so, so from the Reagan propaganda perspective, this was a tribute to Ronald Reagan's genius that yeah. uh, just a few hours after he was sworn in as president, the Iranians released the American hostages. Didn't anybody stop and think there's something wrong with this picture? Yes, uh, the people, you know, in my office, 
we were still in the White House annex, were almost hysterical uh, with laughter and grief, frankly, at, at what was going on, at how this was done. We didn't know how it was done, but we knew the whole thing was rigged. Just as we knew that uh, when Reagan stole, uh, his, his people stole Jimmy Carter's briefing book to prepare for uh, the debates, uh, the press said nothing about it. We knew what was going on. Uh, we saw the crash of the economy coming, uh, and we knew that was a hoax. So, yeah, we saw all of these things, but nobody the was really in. added it up. The fix was in, absolutely. And w later, uh, uh, when I wrote my book and really researched in detail how the military-industrial complex uh, had uh, chosen Reagan as their boy, going all the way back to the days of his California governorship, you know, all the pieces began to fall into place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, that was a crazy time. I remember uh, actually learning about the Trilateral Commission, which was formed by David Rockefeller under the slogan that we've experienced an excess of democracy during the 1960s and we need to roll it back. Right. And handpicking right. Jimmy Carter as their candidate and then torpedoing him seemed to be part of right. their strategy for rolling it back. Yeah, Carter was never a fully uh, uh, born again uh, uh, cold warrior. Mm -hmm. he, he was he, he was on the uh, uh, staff of Admiral Rickover, I guess, when he was coming out of the Naval Academy. Uh, so he had that background and. Uh, but at heart, he was a, a gentleman Christian peanut farmer and and a pretty good guy, as we see even today. Yeah, but but it, he, so, he hung around with some of the wrong people, let's, let's face it. Well, when he got Brzezinski uh, as his, uh, uh, his mastermind, uh, I think that was a pretty good sign uh, of, of what was going on. Uh, but Carter was not uh, uh, good enough for them, whereas Reagan was the hand-picked uh, uh, savior of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You could draw a parallel, actually, between the October surprise with the U.S. hostages finally being released just a few hours after Reagan's inauguration, and that being a huge public relations bonanza for Reagan, or he wanted it to be anyway, and in an alternate universe where the truth about it popped up, I think all too obvious truth, uh, it would yeah. have been the ultimate public relations disaster for Reagan. And likewise with the challenger, yeah. he hoped that calling up the teacher in space, uh, Christina McAuliffe, uh, during his State of the Union address that night would be a huge public relations plus. And then when it blew up and they all the astronauts all died and it was really Reagan's fault, um, that would have been just about as big of a public relations disaster as the truth about right. uh, October Surprise getting out. So, so you know, there's a parallel there with, with these sort of almost mythic kinds of events where the superficial lie about the event uh, is the public relations plus, and then the, uh, the unfortunate reality or truth about them is too terrible for most Americans to even contemplate. Yeah, Reagan was the movie star front man, but he had the right temperament. And if you think about how he got started and, and you go back to when he first began to go on TV, you know, he was the spokesman for one of the biggest military firms in the world, General Electric. 
and then when he first started making noises about uh, uh, running for president, his opening line when he went on television was, I'm mad. I'm mad. So he made a play at the very start at the latent anger of the American public and how easy it is to get people riled up and to get them frightened and angry. And he played that to the hilt. And of course, we see that all over again uh, with Trump. Same deal. Mm -hmm. Make people hate each other. Play on their fears. Play on their angers. Play on their hatred. And then they'll do just about anything you want them to do. Mm -hmm. But of course, the um, the machinery uh, running all of this is it goes far beyond any one person. Uh, the the fear mongers oh, you know, yeah, are, are the people who are putting you know fear mongering us. Whether it's the nine eleven war on terror stuff or whether it's the COVID stuff, it goes way beyond Trump and 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 Reagan, frankly. Yeah, and I digress a little. So let me go back to your question, if I could, Kevin. Okay. Uh, how I got into this. Uh, I've been reading a book, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, by James W. Douglas called JFK and the Unspeakable. That's a great book. Uh, why he died and why it matters. Uh, and, and I just read uh, this evening, waiting for you to call, uh, a quote here from Thomas Merton, uh, the, the uh, American monk who uh, was so instrumental in uh, alerting people to the Cold War mentality back in the uh, in the uh, 60s. And, and here's something he, he wrote. The great danger is that under the pressures of anxiety and fear, the alternation of crisis and relaxation and new crisis, the people of the world will come to accept gradually the idea of war, the idea of submission to total power and the abdication of reason, spirit, and individual conscience. The great peril of the Cold War is the progressive deadening of conscience. And uh, he's right. And, and I guess in my own case, uh, I came to NASA kind of by accident. Uh, I'd left the government and I was looking for an entree back in. And I was offered a job at NASA uh, on the space shuttle program, uh, even though I didn't have any background in uh, aerospace or in the military, which was very closely allied with NASA. But I had been working at a temporary job for the previous few months uh, at a defense uh facility out in suburban Virginia. And that was the foremost thing on my resume. So so they hired me as an analyst in the space shuttle program. And the very first thing that uh, they asked me to do was to go over to the office of space flight, which was the office that ran the space shuttle program, and talk to the engineers there and find out what was going on with the problems that they were having with the O-rings on the solid rocket boosters. So I spent several months uh, uh, on that uh, uh, problem, interviewing engineers. I traveled to NASA facilities, uh, and I was really let in on a lot of the uh, things that uh, nobody in the public would ever hear about. 
as far as all of the problems that the space shuttle was having and how close it had come on numerous occasions to having a catastrophic failure. Uh, but I was there documenting all this, collecting papers. And then when Challenger blew up, uh, the engineers and I, me being kind of the fly on the wall, we knew what had happened. And then we saw uh, the NASA higher ups going on television, on national television, saying, well, this, could, uh, uh, this couldn't have happened. This was a, a failure of primary propulsion. We never have failures of primary propulsion. Uh, we just don't know what it is, but we'll leave no stone unturned in finding out. And, and we saw that was nonsense. Mm-hmm. So they, they were actually failing, planning to stall. Oh, yeah. yeah. And after failing to get through to the commission, which I tried to do, or to some other people outside the government that I was seeking help from, I finally just said, well, the only solution to this is to take these papers down to the New York Times, which I did. And after several meetings with the New York Times, they understood what it was that we were talking about and then printed the O-ring documents to the great surprise of NASA and the Presidential Commission, and that blew the whole thing open. Yeah, it's quite a story. And if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't gone to the Times, how long would do you think it might have taken for the, uh, the truth about the O-rings to get out? Honestly, I think it might never have, because it was my leaks that motivated the engineers out in Utah to speak up and begin telling the press and the commission, yeah, we tried to stop this launch the night before. I'm not sure they would have been able to do that if the uh, news about the O-rings hadn't hit the papers. But I do have to say that there was some other uh, help going on because uh, by this time, Richard Feynman, you know, the Nobel Prize laureate who was on the commission and General Donald Katina and Sally Ride the first female astronaut also on the commission were all getting wise to what was happening. And they understood that uh, there was something really nefarious going on here. And they were able to pressure the commission from the inside to take the uh, uh, whole thing seriously and to uh, at least go as far as they did in exposing uh, what had really happened. And and I wonder if, you know, if you hadn't blown the whistle and gotten this thing going around the O-rings and NASA, clearly they would have stalled for a long time. And you just said you're not sure the truth would have ever come out. Do you think right. that they would have found some sort of nebulous way of explaining the disaster that would have somehow allowed them to keep their program going longer? Because the the whole space shuttle program uh, kind of uh, they had one more disaster in like 93 or something. And and it, right. it didn't go nearly the way they hoped and expected. They, they'd wanted a huge number of launches carrying all kinds of Star Wars right. military gear into space. And basically none of that really right. happened. And what really blew up the whole program, in a sense, was the Challenger. So uh, that's right. There's an alternate history timeline here where you didn't blow the whistle. And uh, who knows what would have happened with that program? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that's it's it's so it's fascinating. So you really did uh, make history here. And what I one of the things that's so fascinating about your story is that you managed to uh, do pretty well as a whistleblower. You didn't get the whole thing fully exposed as far as the cover up going to the top of NASA and the White House. 
although I think your book does pretty well expose that, but that, that book came out, uh, what, 20 years almost later. Uh, but, but you, you got a hearing from the New York times, you got a big, a big bunch of the truth out and you came out looking pretty good. You know, a lot of whistleblowers, they, they'll smear you, they'll honey trap you, they'll do what you do, what they doing to Assange or worse, they'll put a bullet in your head and, and you, you've kind of survived it all. So what, what are your reflections on that? Well, uh, yeah, uh, I had an uh, incredible amount of documentation and support within the infrastructure uh, within the Office of Spaceflight. And so I had credibility. And I deliberately, uh, when I testified before the commission, uh, I deliberately hogged the stage for as long as I could with as much technical detail as they could tolerate to establish my credibility. And so by the afternoon of my testimony, uh, I was pretty much exonerated from having uh, blown the whistle and was being treated as, as an, almost as an expert. And, and I really tried to do that. Uh, to, to for my own safety, but something else that wasn't evident at the time uh, was that I had already gotten a job offer to transfer to the U.S. Treasury Department, and that job offer had been made officially. So I knew that I had a place to go uh, within the government that would protect my livelihood. And after I testified to the commission, uh, I never returned to NASA. Uh, I spent uh, uh, the rest of my uh, tenure there, I took sick leave, to be honest with you, and Mm -hmm. showed up to work at Treasury. And at Treasury, uh, they were of divided opinion because the press was leaving me all kinds of phone messages uh, for interviews. And in fact, the Washington Post engaged me to write an article for their Outlook section that a pretty well-known guy named David Ignatius worked with me on uh, about the title was why I blew the whistle on NASA's O-ring woes. So uh, uh, I had a place to go to and I learned later, I didn't know this at the time, there were people in treasury who wanted me to be fired, but the head of the agency uh, that I went into, uh, his name was Ernie Douglas. He was a real professional old timer within treasury. He protected me. He said, no, this guy's done nothing illegal. We're not going to bend to pressure, political pressure, uh, and fire him. He's a good civil servant. And and they closed ranks around me, Kevin. It was really, uh, and I didn't know all this until much later when my, when, when my supervisor kind of took me aside and told me the story of those few days that when I was in Treasury, when I started in Treasury. And I was even at lunchtime, I was going over to the Willard Hotel to the payphone booths to do press interviews. And they left me alone. Well, that's fantastic. It shows shows there's still some integrity in in government here and there. It reminded me a little bit of uh, I I was treated reasonably for a while by the provost at the University of Wisconsin when I was under fire by politicians for talking about 9-11. Um, right. And in fact, if I had taken the provost's advice and just disappeared and not done any more interviews, 
Uh, uh-huh. For all I know, they might have closed ranks around me a little better <laughs> and, yeah. and re- even rehired me. But, uh, uh, you know, I, th- I think there are there are limits to what you can get away with, even when they're well-meaning. Um, right. And, but, yeah, yeah, you, you did I, a great job and you kept pursuing it. You didn't just you I just did. up after after the commission. Yeah, I, I, I wrote articles. I, I, did, I had interviews with the uh, FBI. I uh, had a long interview with the NASA uh, Office of Inspector General, and I turned over to them massive amounts of documents on other space shuttle programs that were in trouble that I had investigated, including the Shuttle Centaur program that you read about in my book. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm happy to say that that program was also canceled. And I, I have a little bit of pride that maybe I had something to do with that because I thoroughly documented the uh, uh, the safety problems that the astronauts were so alarmed about with that one. So, yeah, I kept I kept going until I ran out of steam, but I still had 15 boxes of uh, documents in my attic that I began to bring out and start to look at uh, as my retirement approach. And I said, hey, I, I got to write this in a book. Mm-hmm. And, and so what year did Challenger Revealed come out? It came out in January of 2007. Hmm, interesting. That, that was okay. kind of right as the 9-11 Truth Movement was peaking, uh, which is okay. probably why I was yeah. too busy to notice. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, yeah. But but the, uh, uh, the we'll call it the, the deep state, if you will, I knew they were on my case then. I was able to follow, you know, they're all over the Internet on chat rooms and other things and and, uh, comment boards on websites, uh, uh, putting out the uh, party line. My book was was viciously attacked uh, and was prevented from uh, getting any major press reviews. So it never really got off the ground as far as a, uh, a bestseller was concerned, although. Uh, Publishers uh, uh, Weekly gave it uh, a starred review, which is like the highest echelon of of approval of the new book, uh, but it never went anywhere. However, there have been plenty of people who uh, have told me that uh, for them, uh, my book was almost a life-changing experience. People who just were close to the space program and just could not swallow uh, what they had been told. So it did affect a lot of people. I did end up making an audio book with it. And then if you've seen the Netflix production that came out, I'm in the Netflix uh, production, uh, Challenger, The Final Flight. So the story is still alive. It's still out there. And and I do think it's made a difference in, uh, in, in the history of our country. It's interesting how the, the deep state still uh, was opposed to your book in 2007, yeah. you know, in the same way that they're still covering up the JFK assassination and first Trump and now Biden are signing off on keeping JFK records, uh, thousands of pages right. of CIA and FBI records sealed in right. perpetuity, blatant violation of the JFK yeah. records act passed yeah. uh, 20 years ago. Uh, so they, they seem to really want to keep these things covered up. And I think your book is probably just too revealing in terms of the way 
that it, it exposes the kind of uh, cover up process that happens in right. these situations. And maybe the, the way narratives get steered too. your, your book also uh, kind of opens would open people's eyes. Uh, that is people who are not yet red pilled who read your book would get a sense of the way that the, the narrative about NASA uh, was, was being undermined by the truth about challenger right. and they'll do anything to prevent that truth from undermining their narrative. Right. And it also, my book also can be read as an expose of the uh, militarization of space. Yes. Uh, that, that's the backstory to the Challenger disaster. Uh, there were some really major things going on parallel to the space shuttle uh, that was signaling the takeover of the manned space program by the Department of Defense. Uh, They were building a new launch pad out at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. They were building a shuttle control facility uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado. They were rolling out a new solid rocket booster prototype that was uh, actually it was a uh, one of these composite things uh, trying to make a rocket out of uh, out of a spun composite material solely for the purpose of launching military satellites. Uh, So there are all these huge multi-billion dollar programs going on in DOD parallel to the space shuttle. Kevin, all those were canceled after Challenger. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the the militarization of space issue is is, uh, one of those really important things that doesn't get much uh, attention. So talk a little right. bit more about how the Challenger program, rather the, the space shuttle program of which the Challenger was a part, was being pressured uh, to have a military role that most people were not aware of. Well, uh, in the in, you go back into the uh, 60s, 70s, uh, the big aerospace firms, and we're talking about people like Raytheon, General Dynamics, uh, uh, Boeing, and so on and so forth. They have been since that time trying to develop uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, doomsday weapons, as some people call them, to put into space. And uh, uh, this has been an ongoing project of, of those companies then and it's happening today because uh, uh, the whole idea is to uh, put yourself in a position where you can launch a first strike against an adversary. And of course, the designated adversary was always the Soviet Union. Now it's been replaced by China as the number one adversary. Uh, giving, you know, the military uh, and the CIA, of course, is part of that wants to have the capability of conducting a first strike from space that will destroy the other nation's ability to retaliate and thereby they'll win the next war and control the world and all that stuff. This was all happening and it's happening today. And there were so many candidates for what that was going to be. Was it going to be what was called a rail gun? Was it going to be laser uh, weapons? Was it going to be directed energy weapons? 
billions of dollars of research has gone into all this with the idea that they were going to put it into space and somehow that was going to tip the balance and, and win, all, win the, the next war. Uh, but they needed to test all of this stuff. And when Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, which reasonable people just laughed at, uh, in I think it was 1983, uh, the space shuttle was designated as a test vehicle. And they'd already started doing tests from the space shuttle on, there was at least one secret DOD mission on the shuttle. There were uh, military uh, experts as uh, payload, special, payload specialists on the shuttle who were conducting these tests. And even on Challenger, uh, one of the astronauts, uh, Onizuka, was a defense payload specialist testing uh, Star Wars uh, technology, all on a very small scale. But they had plans to uh, uh, continue these tests to the point where the military projection for space shuttle missions was gradually going to outweigh all other missions. And so there was a very strong feeling within NASA that we're all, we were seeing the prelude to the Air Force taking over the shuttle, or at least getting their own dedicated shuttles and uh, using these as uh, weapons uh, testing platforms for Star Wars. Uh, Challenger blew up. They couldn't do that anymore. Uh, and it mm-hmm. set the whole program back uh, at first years. And then uh, gradually, uh, when uh, Clinton came in, there were no more military missions on the space shuttle at all. So it pretty much put a stop to the implementation of all of that. But they still want to do it. And this latest thing under Trump with uh, Pence announcing the formation of the Space Force is essentially Star Wars uh, revisited or Star Wars resuscitated with all of the same objectives and all of the same dangers. And, of course, well, and, and let's, the same on their end. Let's clarify what Star Wars is really about, because Reagan tried to sell it as a purely defensive program, that it would be all about stopping a first strike from an adversary. If the Russians decided to strike us first, our wonderful lasers in space would disable their missiles before they could hit us. So it was purely right. defensive, and it would save us from nuclear war. And the truth, of course, was precisely the opposite. And Dr. Bob Bowman had been the head of the Star Wars program under Carter uh, and Ford. And he stepped down because he saw that it had become a pure first strike effort, had nothing to do with defense, because, as he said, the satellite platforms are extremely vulnerable. So they're no good unless they launch first, because they're going to be gone shortly thereafter. So the whole thing was about a first strike and he he talked about these secret things they had, the artificial asteroids program, these things that they, they would drop from space that, that would have the force of asteroids to destroy enemy targets. And they had something right. to set an entire city on fire, which you actually mentioned in your book. Uh, so maybe you yeah. talk a little bit about that, about how this weaponization of space is all about creating a first strike capability and how destabilizing that is and how dangerous it is. Well, the U.S. military... Uh, has been locked into this first strike mentality uh, for a very long time. And again, if you go back to to the days of uh, 
of President Kennedy. Uh, and I refer again to this great book by Douglas on JFK and the Unspeakable. Uh, when the missile, the Cuban Missile Crisis began to unfold, there were actual meetings uh, with Kennedy, and, and I think his brother Bobby Kennedy was there, where the Joint Chiefs of Staff were advocating uh, a first strike against the Soviet Union uh, back in 1961, uh, uh, and they've never lost that attitude. Uh, the military has always had uh, in mind uh, a, a, a search for a way that they could strike first and they could prevent retaliation, or at least enough retaliation to destroy this country in turn. And Kennedy didn't buy that. And according to uh, this historian, that was one reason Kennedy was assassinated, was that he would not buy in to the first strike mentality of the U.S. military and the CIA. Well, fast forward. Uh, after all that happened in Vietnam, uh, Reagan comes along and the, and the same ilk now is operating in the Reagan administration through the uh, uh, group uh, that was pushing the uh, uh, strategic defense initiative. And yeah, you're right. Reagan portrayed that as a defensive uh, weapons uh, mission to knock out uh, the uh, mutual assured destruction uh, standoff. But it was clear to everybody at the time that this was a way to get offensive weapons back in, in, into space, even though the, uh, uh, by treaty, the United States and every other country is not allowed to place uh, weapons of mass destruction into space. But if you could somehow twist that or conceal that uh, by putting up these exotic laser weapons and uh, other things of that nature, maybe you could uh, uh, steal a march on whoever the adversary was going to be. But the big problem came, as you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And we suddenly began asking for where is this, the peace dividend? Uh, now we don't have to spend so much money anymore on the military and their paranoid uh, schemes. But of course, all that went down the drain with 9-11. And now today we're back in the same thing that we were in back in the earlier uh, uh, administrations of Eisenhower, Kennedy, and then later Reagan of putting more and more money into defense, creating a separate space force, and, uh, and, and giving the defense contractors more or less free reign to begin coming up with a system that can destroy uh, other countries without retaliation. And you know that if they come up with something, it'll be just like the ABM treaty. Uh, that suddenly, uh, uh, Bush just abrogated it. He canceled it because they thought they had the technology now to go beyond it. Uh, the same thing would happen with this treaty prohibiting weapons of mass destruction in space. The U.S. just one day will say, no, that, we're not going to follow it anymore. And now we've got the upper hand because we've got the weaponry that we can use to blackmail our adversaries. So, you know, the whole scenario just plays out. But nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. They've been doing this for the last two generations. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned 
sort of revitalizing the military industrial complex. And that perhaps was one of its purposes. Two key 9-11 truth movement figures are in your book, uh, Barbara Honiger, who was working for the Reagan White House and wrote the book October Surprise about the way the Reagan campaign had negotiated with Iran to keep the hostages locked up until Carter could be overthrown. And then Dr. Bob Bowman, who I got to know, he stayed here at my house uh, in his motorhome. Uh, and I, I used to have intersected with him at many events. Um, he was quite quite a guy. Uh, he shows up in your book actually supporting you when your whistleblowing had kind of reached the, its limit in terms of other people. Uh, was it Senator Fritz Hollings? I think it was uh, finally got cold feet. And so the only guy honest enough to uh, keep helping you there was was Bob Bowman. So I thought that was interesting that that those two people, you know, key figures in the 9-11 truth movement, Barbara Honiger and Bob Bowman, uh, are there in your book. And then uh, interestingly, David Ray Griffin in the New Pearl Harbor, his seminal book on 9-11, argues that there seemed to be some uh, perhaps uh, one element of the thinking behind the people who pulled off 9-11 was they needed uh, lots of money to kind of go go back into this weaponization of space program. I think he mentions that Richard Myers, who was the head of Joint Chiefs uh, during 9-11, is a, a key weaponization of space figure. So what parallels do you see between the uh, militarization of space issues that you were dealing with in the mid 80s and then what happened on 9-11? Hello, Richard. That's interesting. Um, Seem to have lost Richard Cook. Let me see if the connection is still there. Okay, I'm, I'm seeing we have a poor connection, it says, so I don't even know if I'm broadcasting. Um, I will uh, plug in my backup router here, and hopefully we'll get the connection reestablished here in just a moment. Um, we're talking about Richard Cook's book, Challenger Revealed, an insider's account of how the Reagan administration caused the greatest tragedy of the space age. It's a terrific book, and uh, it's interesting that just when I uh, brought up the 9-11 issue, suddenly the uh, connection drops, and I have no idea whether the uh, connection has dropped with uh, just me or with Richard and the network as well. So we'll see whether I can get my alternate router going here in time. Okay, so it looks like Richard lost the connection too. Interesting. So maybe it's Revolution Radio that is having the problems. Uh, so we'll see what we can do here in terms of restoring the connection. Um, uh, so I just got an email from Richard. Me too. Uh, he lost his connection. I'm telling him me too. And so I wonder if it's uh, related to Revolution Radio. I know I'm able to still record here, so I'm May or may not be broadcasting live, but I know I'm still recording for the archive version of this show. And uh, we'll see if we'll, we can reestablish this now. Maybe somebody uh, <laughs> somebody doesn't doesn't like uh, Richard and I talking about 9-11, and they're just trying to let us know. A uh, little nudge, nudge, wink, wink, know what I mean kind of thing. Or maybe it's just another uh, of those interesting coincidences that sometimes happen. Internet glitches and so on. Um, and uh, I don't think it's just on 
uh, on my end, though, because I don't think Richard would have lost his connection, too, unless there were something uh, something bigger going on. So let me see if I can get the alternate router working and that, see if that helps. And uh, we'll see if we can reestablish the connection with Richard. If all else fails here, I suppose I could go outside of the network and just call Richard directly. And maybe that connection would work. So maybe I'll, I'll try that because um, I can see that my connection is not any. Now I'm on the wireless. So uh, I guess I have no other. Okay, looks like we're back. Yes, we're back uh, live here on Revolution.Radio. Hello. Richard, uh, looks like we got knocked off the air just when yeah. I started asking you about 9-11. How interesting. Right. Yes, I found that quite interesting. <laughs> well, one of those weird coincidence synchronicity things, or, or maybe not. Who knows? Anyway, I, I was right. just asking about uh, Bob Bowman and Barbara Honiger, who were both key 9-11 Truth Movement figures, also right. figuring in your book, and then the relationship of that, uh, of 9-11 as a space Pearl Harbor, which I think was Richard Myers, head of the Joint Chiefs on 9-11, had yearned for a space Pearl Harbor, or either, rather, quote-unquote, feared a space Pearl Harbor. Um, what do you think was the relationship between 9-11 uh, and this push for the weaponization of space? Well, I have no real information. Uh, I didn't really know Barbara, but uh, Bob Bowman was somebody I got to know pretty well. Uh, I actually did some of my writing uh, at his house in Chesapeake Beach, Maryland. And uh, he he was uh, uh, really a a special person, special to me because of the support that he gave me at the time, but also just a tremendously knowledgeable a person about the technology issues that most people know absolutely nothing about. And, and that's one way that uh, uh, these uh, insiders have such a advantage over ordinary people like us is that they can talk the technology game uh, to such an extent that they can talk circles around not only us, but our representatives in Congress, uh, our political leaders, so-called, who don't have a chance to match up with these uh, professionals who've learned to talk to jargon and also who have uh, these high security clearances. And, of course, a security clearance means that you are a trained liar. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to tell the truth about anything because you aren't going to uh, disclose national security secrets uh, under any circumstances to anybody who's not uh, at the same level you are. And so uh, ordinary people, the American democracy, uh, the legitimate press, we're all at a tremendous disadvantage to see through the smoke screens that these people are constantly creating, and one of them, of course, was the 9-11 smokescreen. And so many things have come in the wake of that, uh, the Patriot Act and all of that whole 
uh, side of things, the militarization of a space that has followed on, uh, that has been kind of reborn uh, in the last uh, uh, 20 years. Uh, it's, it's all connected. Uh, and yeah, the 9-11 was, a, it was, a, it was a, a coup. It was a, a Reagan-esque uh, event. It was a, a assassination of Kennedy event uh, at that level and maybe even beyond. Uh, but who can penetrate what is really going on behind that? And these top generals, more than anything else, they're PR spokespersons whose job it is to pull the wool over the eyes of the ordinary person and of the inquiring politician. So nobody really stands a chance uh, in dealing with those kinds of people. So we're kind of just at the mercy of events, but we also have to hope that somewhere in the universe, uh, there's a level of consciousness that can somehow uh, act on the side of the right and the good and the true and deliver us from all of this. Where that lies, I think, is something each of us has to search for. Mm-hmm. And we only have a few minutes left, but in, we've corresponded a little bit, and you mentioned uh, a uh, kind of spiritual guide named Bo Yin Ra um, that you've yeah. found uh, very uh, interesting and, and worth paying attention to. So maybe you could just briefly uh, tell us uh, where we would go to find out more about him. Well, uh, it kind of connects with um, uh, my interest in uh, German culture. And uh, it was kind of awakened by the fact that uh, I have a son and grandkids in Germany, and I've made several trips there. But also in my reading in philosophy and religion, uh, I've gone back to the medieval mystics, uh, people like Meister Eckert, and uh, other German uh, uh, teachers from the Middle Ages and found strains of, uh, and Meister Eckhart is pretty well known mm-hmm. uh, these days as a, as a medieval meditator uh, and uh, a, a spiritual person who's not bound up with religious ideology or dogmatism. And, and so I began to follow German teaching, German philosophy, German religion, uh, I read Goethe extensively. Uh, I had a project where I was reading a lot of Karl Barth. Uh, and then another German figure who uh, uh, is pretty prominent right now is uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle, who's a pretty well-known uh, spiritual teacher. Who uh, He lives in Canada, but he's from Germany, and he grew up... Uh, uh, with the uh, his father was uh, uh, very interested in this German uh, teacher whose uh, spiritual name was Bo Yin Ra, and I found that uh, his some of his books anyway are now in translation in English and are being published by the Faber Press, which is a pub a small publisher in Berkeley, California who's brought out 20 or 25 or so of his books. Uh, And these are books that I have read and studied extensively that really go to the heart of what the great world's great religions are all about. 
and provide a lot of insight and background, particularly to uh, the life and teachings of Jesus, who I have always been fascinated by. Uh, I'm not, I haven't always been a churchgoer, but I've always been uh, most interested in and respectful of the teachings of, uh, of Jesus and the early Christian uh, teachers uh, in particular. And, and so my study of, uh, of Bo Yin Ra, and by the way, Bo Yin Ra affirms what lots of people have believed, that uh, Earth is not by far the only planet with human beings on it. Uh, there are many planets throughout the universe where the human uh, form uh, has come into being and who face essentially the same kinds of problems and issues as we do. But one of the things that I believe he outlines most clearly, at least to me, is this idea that the earth is really a battleground between good and evil. Mm -hmm. uh, that there are high spiritual forces on either side, uh, along with, of course, uh, us in our daily life, our daily uh, attempts to understand ourselves and life better and to, to do the right thing. But uh, there's this whole drama going on uh, with human beings kind of in the middle to make the choices that they wish to make that affect not only their life today, but their whole life in the world to come. And so this has just been a big uh, element of my study in the last few years. And uh, I strongly recommend to anyone who wishes to pursue this, go onto the internet, look up Faber Press, F-A-B-E-R, in Berkeley, California, and take a look at some of the samples there of, uh, of his writing and some of the books that are available. They're available at, at very low cost. And uh, it's just been a whole world of, uh, of spirituality that's opened up for me that has strong connections to many other things that I studied and value a great deal. Okay, well, there are all, all sorts of um, living uh, spiritual mystical traditions out there that even people like me who studied uh, Sufism, for example, in the university are not aware of. And I hadn't heard about Bo Yin Ra until you mentioned him, and I will be looking into that. So thank you so, so much, uh, Richard Cook. It's been great. I appreciate your wonderful book, Challenger Revealed, and uh, it was a wonderful interview, too. So God bless and hope to have you again on the show. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Okay, take care. Just a